Now, Dick, and remember this, no man can touch you. No man has the right to pull you up or lay a finger on you. You're as independent as the best gentleman in the land, so long as you keep straight. Remember that. I see there's a friend waiting for you. Sure enough, there was a man that I knew that lived near Rocky Flat. He was a quiet, steady-going sort of farmer, and never would have had no truck with us in our flash times. He was driving a spring cart with a good sort of horse in it. "'Come along with me, Dick,' he says he. "'I'm going your way, and I promised George Storfield I'd call and give you a lift home. I'm glad to see you out again, and there's a few more round Rocky Flat that's the same.' We had a long drive, many a mile to go before we were near home. I couldn't talk. I didn't know what to say, for one thing. I could only feel as if I was being driven along the road to heaven after coming from the other place. I couldn't help wondering whether it was possible that I was a free man going back to life and friends and happiness. Was it possible? Could I ever be happy again? Surely it must be a dream that would all melt away, and I'd wake up as I'd done hundreds of times and find myself on the floor of the cell, with the bare walls all around me. When we got nearer the old place I began to feel that queer and strange that I didn't know which way to look. It was coming on for spring, and there had been a midland drop of rain, seemingly, that had made the grass green and everything look grand. What a time had passed over since I thought whether it was spring or summer or winter. It didn't make much odds to me in there, only to drive me wild now and again with thinking of what was going on outside, and how I was caged up and likely to be for months and years. Things began, little by little, to look the way they used to do long and long ago. Now it was an old overhanging limb that had arched over the road since we were boys. Then there was a rock with a big Kurajong tree growing near it. When we came to the turn-off, where we could see Nulla Mountain, everything came back to me. I seemed to have had two lives, the old one, and then a time when I was dead or next door to it. And now this new life. I felt as if I was just born. "'We'll get down here now,' I said, when we came near the dividing fence. "'It ain't far to walk. That's your road.' "'Ah, I'll run you up to the door,' says he. "'It isn't far. You ain't used to walking much.' He let out his horse, and we trotted through the paddock up to the old hut. "'The garden don't look bad,' says he. "'Them peaches always used to bear well in the old man's time, and the apples and the quinces, too. Someone's had it took care on and tied it up a bit. There. You've got a friend or two left, old man.' "'And I'm one, too,' says he, putting out his hand and giving mine a shake. "'There ain't anyone in these parts as'll cast it up to you as long as you keep straight. "'You can look em all in the face now, and bygones'll be bygones.' "'Then he touched up his horse and rattled off before I could so much as say thank ye. "'I walked through the garden and sat down in the veranda on one of the old benches. "'There was the old place, mighty little altered, considering.' The hut had been mended up from time to time, now a slab and then a sheet of bark, else it would have been down long enough ago. The garden had been dug up and the trees trimmed year by year. A hinge had been put on the old gate and a couple of slip-rails at the paddock. The potato patch at the bottom of the garden was sown, and there were vegetables coming on in the old beds. Someone had looked after the place. Of course, I knew who it was. It began to get coldish, and I pulled the latch. It was there just the same and went into the old room. I almost expected to see Mother in her chair, and Father on the stool near the fireplace where he used to sit and smoke his pipe. Eileen's was a little low chair near Mother's. Jim and I used to be mostly on the veranda, unless it was very cold, and then we used to lie down in front of the fire, that is, if Dad was away, as he mostly was. 
The room felt cold and dark as I looked in, so dreadful lonely, too. almost wish I was back in Gaul. When I looked around again I could see things had been left ready for me, so I wasn't to find myself bad off the first night. The fire was all made up, ready to light, and matches on the table ready. The kettle was filled in a basket close handy with a leg of mutton, a bread and butter and eggs, and a lot of things, enough to last me a week. The bedroom had been settled up, too, and there was a good, comfortable bed ready for any tired man to turn into. Better than all, there was a letter signed, Your Own Gracie, that made me think I might have some life left worth living yet. I lit the fire, and after a bit made shift to boil some tea, and after I'd finished what little I could eat, I felt better, and sat down before the fire to consider over things. It was late enough, midnight, before I turned in. I couldn't sleep then. But at last I must have dropped off, because the sun was shining into the room through the old window with the broken shutter when I awoke. At first I didn't think of getting up. Then I knew all of a sudden that I could open the door and go out. I was in the garden in three seconds, listening to the birds and watching the clouds rising over Nullah Mountain. That morning after breakfast I saw two people, a man and a woman, come riding up to the garden gate. I knew who it was as far as I could see him, George Storefield and Gracie. He lifted her down, and they walked up through the garden. I went a step or two to meet them. She ran forward and threw herself into my arms. George turned away for a bit. Then I put her by and told her to sit down on the veranda while I had a talk with George. He shook hands with me and said he was glad to see me a free man again. I worked a bit and got others to work, too, says he, mostly for her and partly for your own sake, Dick. I can't forget old times. Now you're your own man again, and I won't insult you by saying I hope you'll keep so. I know it as sure as I stand here. Look here, George, I said. As there's a God in heaven, no man shall ever be able to say a word against me again. I think more of what you've done for me almost than of poor Gracie's holding fast. It came natural to her. Once a woman takes to a man, it don't matter to her what he is. But if you'd thrown me off, I'd have not blamed you. What's left of Dick Marston's life belongs to her and you. That day week Gracie and I were married very quiet and private. We thought we'd have no one at the little church at Bargo but George and his wife. The old woman and the chappas drove me home. Just as we were going into the church, who should come rattling up on horseback but Maddie Barnes and her husband, Mrs. Morton, as she was now, with a bright-looking boy of ten or eleven on a pony. She jumps off and gives the bridle to him. She looked just the same as ever, a trifle stouter, but the same saucy look about the eyes. "'Well, Dick Marston,' says she, "'how are you? Glad to see, old man. You got him safe at last, Gracie, and I wish you joy. You came to Bella's wedding, Dick, and so I thought I'd come to yours. Oh, you kept it so awful quiet. How do you think the old horse looks?' "'Why, why, it's it's never rainbow,' says I. It's, "'It's twelve years and over since I saw him last.' "'I don't care if it was twenty, said she. "'Here he is and goes as sound as a bell. "'His poor old teeth are getting done, "'but he ain't the only one that way, is he, Joe? "'He'll never die if he can keep him alive. "'I have to give him cornmeal, though, "'so as he can grind it easy. "'I believe she thinks more of that old moke "'than me and the children all put together,' says Joe Morton. "'And why shouldn't I?' says Matty, "'facing round at him just the old way. "'Isn't he the finest horse that ever stood on legs, and didn't he belong to the finest gentleman that you or anyone else looked at?' "'Don't say a word against him, for I can't stand it. I believe that if you was to lay a whip across that old horse in anger, I'd go away and leave you, Joe Morton.' 
just as if you was a regular black stranger. Poor Rainbow, isn't he a darling? Here she stroked the old horse's neck. He was rolling fat and had a coat like satin. His legs were just as clean as ever, and he stood there as if he heard everything, moving his old head up and down the way he always did, never still a moment. It brought back old times, and I felt soft enough, I tell you. Maddie's lips were trembling again, too, and her eyes like two coals of fire. As for Joe, he said nothing more, and the best thing, too. The boy led Rainbow over to the fence, and old George walked us all into the church, and that settled things. After the words were said, we all went back to George's together, and Maddie and her husband drank a glass of wine to our health, and wished us luck. They rode as far as the turn-off to Rocky Flat with us, and then took the Turon Road. "'Good-bye, Dick,' says Maddie, bending down over the old horse's neck. "'You've got a stunning good wife now, if ever any man had in the whole world. Mind you're an A-1 husband, or we'll all round on you, and your life won't be worth having. And I've got the best horse in the country, haven't I? See where the bullet went through his poor neck? There's no lady in the land got one that's a patch on him.' "'Steady now, Rainbow. We'll be off in a minute. "'You shall see my little Jim there take him over a hurdle-yard. "'He can ride a bit, as young as he is. "'Pity poor old Jim ain't here to-day, isn't it, Dick? "'Think of him being cold in his grave now, and we here? "'Well, it's no use crying, is it?' "'And off went Maddie at a pace that gave Joe and the boy all they knew to catch her. "'Well, we're to live here for a month or two till... I get used to outdoor work and the regular old bush life again. There's no life like it, to my fancy. Then we start bag and baggage for one of George's Queenland stations, right away up on the bar coup, that I'm to manage and have a share in. It freshens me up to think of making a start in a new country. It's a long way from where we were born and brought up, but all the better for that. Of course, they'll know about me, but in any part of Australia— once a chap shows that he's given up cross-doings and means to go straight for the future, the people of the country will always lend him a helping hand, particularly if he's married to such a wife as Gracie. I'm not afraid of any of my troubles in the old days being cast up to me, and men are so scarce and hard to get west of the Barcoo that no one that once had Dick Marston's help at a muster is likely to remind him of such an old story as that of robbery under arms. End of chapter 52. Recording by Mike Harris. And end of Robbery Under Arms by Ralph Boldrewood.